started. Um, for those of you that we have a, a few people that are, are a little bit new, here's what we're, here's what we're doing. This class is about, uh, we're trying to do first century Judaism and put everything that we're hearing in context behind it. And one of the ways that I found to do that in this, in this last few classes here was take a look at the hundred, the thousand year history that is uh, the 23rd Psalm. It goes all the way from David all the way to Peter where they're drawing on the 23rd Psalm to, to amplify things. Uh, and that gives us some idea about the culture and how they, how they saw things. And, and uh, the more I look at it, kind of the, the cooler it gets. So, so basically, here's where we are. We're still... <laughs> yes, we're still... We're still deep in the sheep. <laughs> yeah, he's having a good time there. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, leftover from last week. Uh, who would have guessed it would take us two class periods to finish getting through the 23rd Psalm? It's only like six verses. Um, but... Left over from last week. Here's something that I realized. We were talking uh, last time about the fact uh, of the rod and the staff. Uh, they comfort me. And remember that the Egyptian form of it was uh, the, the, the staff, the shepherd's staff, and the flail, which was their version of the rod, um, which really kind of meant uh, both the uh, shepherding and the kingship. The, the love and care along with kind of the, the commandments and the rules and you get that, you get that combo, okay? Um, and so when Jesus was born, guess who was invited to the event other than the family? Three kings. kings and shepherds. shepherds. Does that make sense? Yeah. That, we're, that it's going to be witnessed if this, if this uh, grand shepherd king was going to come, then it would be obviously um, witnessed by shepherds and kings. So I, I don't think that's necessarily an accident that, that he would then be wel welcomed as the shepherd king of Israel. That's uh, kind of a cool thought. All right. That said then, back to the 23rd Psalm. Now, in the middle of all of this, we're talking about the shepherd and we're talking about uh, uh, all the still waters and all those kind of things. And all at once, the Savior comes, for thou art with me. In the middle of this, this hinge point, they call it, in the psalm, the Savior suddenly, suddenly appears. Before, he's my shepherd, he comforts me. Oh, wait a minute, thou art with me. And then he says, and you prepare a table. Well, that's kind of interesting. So, so let me ask you this. In the, pro, uh, in the process of uh, you bring me back is the actual term. King James translated that as uh, you restoreth my soul. But the more literal version of that is you bring me back. I have been brought back. I was lost and now I'm found. I have been returned. Okay? In the middle of that, I've been returned and then you prepare a table. Now, 
my question would be uh, why would the shepherd and the imagery of the shepherd now becomes a host why would the shepherd become a host he feeds us why the wheels are turning yeah so one thing I think of is as a host lays things in front of you and invites you, but then you have to partake. Ah, kind of that's right. Christ gives us things and gives us the table, but he doesn't shove the food down. There we go. But why, why in the midst of all of this, and we were lost and now we're found, how come we're now having a table and being hosted? Well, shepherding your place, getting you from one place to another. Right. And then a host serves you in their home. Right. Ah. Okay, now, again, think of, remember, this was written by King David, and he's going through his process. Why are we now getting a table? Yeah. No answer for that question, but uh, did you turn your recorder on? I did. Thank you for checking. What did she say? She wanted, she wanted to make sure we got the, the recorder on. Okay, yeah. It's a symbol of showing thankfulness. Th showing thankfulness to what? To what being saved, brought back into Yes. Guess what this is? This is, I was lost and now I'm found and now what are we doing? We're having, you know, this is, this is a celebratory meal. It's a feast. It's a feast. Right. That's right. And I, I was lost. He, he puts me on his shoulders. Think about, he, he's the, it's like a yoke. Picture the, the sheep over the shoulder. The, the, the yoke is kind of symbolic of this. Okay, he's going to bring us back, and what happens when the lost is brought back? We rejoice. We celebrate. Now, we're going to see this. We'll see whether we get to Mark 6 today, uh, but we're going to talk about celebratory meals when the sinners return. That it isn't like, well, it's about time, you know, sit your rear end down and don't mess up again. <laughs> This is celebrate. They were lost. They're found, and we're going to party. There is rejoicing. Mark six says the angels in heaven rejoice when the sinner returns. That's what this is. This is a very cool moment. So we get this celebratory meal uh, coming from who and who prepares the table. Well, you've been starving in the wilderness. Yeah, I've been starving in the wilderness. So if you're lost and you're, and you're found, you probably can't wait to get hungry. Right. And, so hungry. and it's, you know, that's on a basic level, but on this level right here, hopefully, when Satan has brought us back, we are, we're hungry for his word. We're hungry, we're hungry to know the gospel. We're hungry to be able to do better and so on and so forth. Ah. Filling, you're being filled with what you were missing. In, in the actual sense, I was hungry, I'm starving, but in a spiritual sense, I was sin, and I've been, you brought me back. When bringing back, I'm going to be filled with what I was missing. Yeah. The 
prodigal son would have been happy to eat the husks. Hang on to that one. Because, like, again, Mark 6, and we'll see whether we get to it today. If not today, it'll be the first one next week, uh, is exactly that. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. He was lost and now he's found. But again, on top of that, we want to say sometimes when somebody wanders in the wilderness, they're lost. Uh, a lot of times the lost in the church these days say... Hey, uh, I was stuck in this restrictive church, and now I'm going to be lost, which means I get to drink coffee, and I get to go get drunk, and, you know, and I can go shopping on Sundays, and I get to do all of these stuff. I'm having a great time being lost. Until <laughs> the prodigal son talks about, until a drought comes, and they suddenly realize what they had. Well, it takes them a long time to realize what they had. Okay. So we have a celebratory meal when they come back. Now the thing that makes this even more fascinating from a cultural standpoint, you prepare a table for me, which means the Savior is preparing a, saber, a table for us. But in a cultural sense, who prepared the table? In the ancient Near East. Family, specifically who? Father. No, father wouldn't prepare the table. Mother. The mother would. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Gonna no, it's going to be the. <laughs> what life does he live in? I know. <laughs> L listen, at, at, at Thanksgiving time, I'm smoking the turkey. <laughs> I'm doing the turkey thing. Yes, me, turkey, smoke, hours, middle of the night, smoking great turkey. Here it is. Where's the real work going on? <laughs> All the other, yes, preparing the table. She's preparing everything else that goes with that. And I think it's fascinating that in this sense, we're getting this idea of saying, you prepare a table. Well, in reality, he would, he would provide the table. The men would, in this setting, would provide the table and the means for providing the table. But who actually prepared the table? Women prepare the table. So there is a sense, and we're going to, again, we're going to, I keep foreshadowing, Mark 6. We're going to see the Savior comparing himself to, to a woman. And, and the sense of this, the, the female side, the contributing part of this is preparing the table for the celebratory meal of the return of the sinner. Okay? So it's, it's, a, it's kind of a cool imagery that I think is there. And in my own little selfish mind, I, I keep thinking, okay, little heavenly mother hanging in there somewhere, you know, that she's helping God prepare tables uh, in the sense that her presence is there, not because she's been delegated to just fix dinners or something, but, but there is a female presence in part of the preparation that I think that we just don't have, and it has never been given to us, but I, I kind of feel like it's there. Does that make sense? Okay, so you prepare a table. Now we're going to have this celebratory meal so Luke's, Luke 15 that we're going to be getting to the Pharisees um, this man accepts sinners and eats
eats with them. Oh, not only is he having a celebratory meal, he's eating with them. And then later we're going to, you know, in the prodigal son, bring the fatted calf that we may eat and be merry. This son of mine was dead and lives again. He's lost and he's found. Let's celebrate when they make it back. Don't we kind of do that anyway? If, we, if somebody in the ward has kind of been inactive for a while and they show up, what do we do? Welcome back! Oh, you're here! Now, and sometimes when they're a little sheepish about come back, sheepish, get it? Sheepish. <laughs> Uh, sometimes they feel a little bit overwhelmed because everybody, and conversely, what happens if they show up and nobody says anything? It was proof they weren't missed. And, and this is kind of suggested, no party! They're here! They were lost! They're found! We're not going to say, well, I know you've been doing a lot of bad things, so you go through the repentance process and we'll be nice to you again. <laughs> We're saying, you're here, you know, and the Savior carried you on his shoulders. You, you, you know, and, and you're here, okay? And they begin to be merry. I, I, I love that. Okay. Now, so at, at this next part of this, I'm going to run you through the process I ran through. <laughs> Because there was a part of this I did not understand, and it took me some digging, and in fact I searched, oh gosh, about ten sources, and I still didn't get a satisfactory answer to this next part. And it's one of those things that I think I finally found, but I'm going to let you guys find the same nugget uh, that I found. Okay? You prepare a table before me. We're celebrating as the party, but we're going to prepare the table where? What's the next line? Oh, wow. In the presence of mine enemies. And I thought, wow. Does that, that's kind of an interesting little phrase. And again, I couldn't find any, any explanations that I really liked. Um, in fact, the explanation that I found I liked better than the ones that they did. So, uh, anyway. Cause, cause, and let me put it this way so you can kind of see what I saw. This is done in a couplet. It's a Hebraic poem. It's done in a couplet. And when they do that, then there's a relationship between the elements. Okay? So put it this way. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So that means that in the, those in the blue uh, have a relationship. Those in the red have a relationship. So that made it even more interesting to me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. We're going to see a literal time when the woman is going to anoint the Savior where, where this actually happens and kind of in the presence of the enemies. But that's a long time from happening yet. So, I kept wondering, in the presence of mine enemies and my cup over overflows. That's kind of a weird pairing. Okay? Uh, so, the, I'll tell you what kind of, I know your wheels are turning, and they should be, because this is the kind of analysis I think we, the scriptures deserve, because that's when the, the deeper nuggets start rising up and you understand even more deeply what was going on. Yeah? I have an idea if you're asking. Fire, fire away. Sure. 
Okay, um, in the presence of my enemies, we're enemies to God when we're sinning, but when he anoints our head with oil, our hearts overflow with love and peace and joy. You got it in 30 seconds what took me all week. <laughs> oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, and let me let me tell you what unlocked it for me. I actually one of the sources that I go to is a little is a real little resource called the Blue Letter Bible. And the Blue Letter Bible will take every verse in the scriptures and and gives all the the Hebrew and Greek words for it and all the and all the possibilities on it. And so if I have a question, I always go to the blueletterbible.com. Okay, and so I went to blueletterbible.com on enemies. So what is, what exactly is enemies? And, and here is the explanation that I got from that. Read through that for just a second and then tell me who our enemies are. Kevin, you might want to read it out loud. Can, can you guys see that in the back? No. No. <laughs> okay, here, it, it, some of the verbiage. Uh, th there's, there's two different ways that that's gone, and, and, and the qual and qual and hippol, th those are just kind of the, uh, the Greek words. To bind, be narrow, be in distress, make narrow, cause distress. To bind, tie up, shut up, be scant, be cramped. To be bound, to tied up. To make narrow, cause distress. Okay? In the presence of mine enemies. What are the enemies? Us. Us. In what way? Our thoughts. Our thoughts are... Our, 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 our sins. Our weaknesses. Our natural madness. Does that make sense? He's going to prepare a table before us. He's going to give us this loving, caring grace. He's, he, it's his bread. It is him. He's giving us, and in the sacrament sense, he gives us us, him. He gives him him. Gives us him. My blood, my, my body. My, he gives us him. And then he says, and he's going to do it in the presence of Our weaknesses. What would be an example of, of our, our enemies then? Think about those things that bind you up, that hedge you in, that... Pride. Our pride can be our, our enemy. It binds us. It, it narrows our ability to see things. And our ability not to forgive others. Our grudges. Yep. Our, our anger. Fears. Our fears can be a binding. I can't go here. I can't do this because I'm being hedged in. That would be an enemy to our soul. Yes, our guilt. Our guilt. Bad habits. Our bad habits. Our addictions. I'm going to take it farther. Okay? <laughs> Okay, you getting that sense? I will prepare a table of my grace, of my love, in the presence, in the very presence of your weaknesses, your sins, those things that bind you, your pride, your anger, your grudges, but also your addictions. How about, can, can an enemy to your joy be um, things like cancer? 
diabetes. A wayward child and our experience with that might be an enemy to our happiness, to our joy. Absolutely. Our enemies are those things that constrict us and bind us and hold us up. So it would make a perfect sense that the Lord is going to say, in the midst of your weaknesses, I'm going to show you love and compassion and grace and forgiveness. I will give you me at your struggles. Okay? And in fact, then the cup, now the coupling in red that ties with that makes perfect sense, does it not? I will prepare a table for you in the midst of your weaknesses and your pains and your hurts and maybe your past. And instead, what do we get? Our cup overflows. We have so much we don't know what to do with it. I think that's, I, I think that's just incredibly powerful. Yeah, that the atonement is the atonement is always uh, I was I was talking about the god of more that we worship the god of more. We want this, he gives us this in the long run. I just want I was a leper, I just wanted to be clean. Yeah, and I'm going to give you salvation on top of that. We just wanted more fishers or more fishes. Great. You're going to get more fishes and you're going to I'm going to make you fishers of men. I will take you and and we're going to talk about that in this sec with the feeding of the 5000, okay? There will always be more. And in sense in a sense this my cup overflows. Yeah. Anoint brings to mind I will heal your wounds. Yeah. And if, if I'm going to take the things that it takes, my job is to be the, the healer. And I will anoint you. Now, I'm going to anoint you not just so that you can be healed, but also I'm going to anoint you in the sense of making you more. And you're going to be, if you go to the temple, you're going to get an anointing that, it, that offers you more in the eternities than what you were. Okay, so you get this jump, and so now it makes sense. You in my, you brought me back. You brought me back. You prepared a table before me in the presence of all of my weaknesses, and in all of my weaknesses, you anoint me with oil. You heal me. You set me up to be somebody. You put the ring back on my finger. You give me the robe when I return. And there's so much that my cup runneth over. I just have no words to explain how gratitude, how much gratitude I have. Well, that's suddenly that should that should jump at us. I think. All right. Now, interestingly enough, and I'm going to show you a couple of cases, uh, both today and and next week, where this was literally fulfilled. There was a table prepared in the presence of enemies. Uh, but in the spiritual sense for all of us, this is, I think this is its greatest, grandest meaning that we have somebody that prepares that table for us. Okay. Any more any comments on that? Is that just grand, isn't it? Yeah. I always want to, oh, if, if we 
time I almost call you President Hinckley. Sorry. Yeah, yeah okay. I, I'm the Sunday School President. You can call me President Hinckley. That would be. <laughs> <laughs> President Hinckley, I just want to express my gratitude for this because it's just one of made me want to cry that I, I feel like that that I can read King David's heart. His his grand. Um, it's like he lowered himself to the ground to, to recognize what kind of blessings he has received. Yeah, and, and I think that's a great point. Keep, keep in mind from a literal standpoint, so here's King David recognizing all of his sins, and he says, and what you've given me back, you brought me back, and you've given me these, you've loved me and cared about me more than I deserved. Yeah, I, I, I think this is one of the most beautiful poems. It is. Thank you for everything I learned here. It's really so. <laughs> yeah, she says this is one of the most beautiful poems. You can see why this thing, when people understood it, has a thousand year history to it. Mm -hmm. Why they would keep referring back to it because of the power and the beauty that, that exists here. Okay? So, then it would make sense then if this is what we're talking about. Um, that surely then, surely, if that's the case, if you have brought me back and loved me and cared about me, that surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Now, if you're sheep in the wilderness, what are you afraid is going to be following you? Wolves. Yeah, thieves. Okay? But surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And if that's the case then, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in this case, the house, yeah, I'm going to be going back to the sheepfold where it's safe and the Savior is the door for which we enter uh, and that protection is there. Yeah? You know, going back to that other what you said about the shepherding. Yeah. He has done the, you know, the uh, personal, but there's also a reflection of the kingship in that. That uh, in the presence of my enemies, he had a lot of enemies out there that wanted to destroy him. There you go. Now you're thinking. He did. And, and so I think that's one of those cases, uh, and I think we touched on it briefly last time, but it's one of those cases where I think this was literally fulfilled, that, that the, the, the Lord is accepting the repentance that David can do, and he's going to lift it up. He's anointed king. He's enabled to um, begin to put all the materials together for the temple. Because of it, it says because of the shedding of blood, he's not going to be able to build the temple. That's going to be Solomon's. But David's going to be able to gather the material. David's able to move the ark up onto the mount. Uh, so there's a lot that David is doing. And in the midst of that, there are going to be those, I think, that maybe fought with Uriah or, or knew Bathsheba or something like that. There are going to be those that are enemies or, at the very least, political enemies. Other suitors that thought that they would make a better king than the shepherd guy that the Lord brought out of the fields. So there's always going to be enemies. Okay? So, great point. Okay? All right. Yeah. What he 
hit me on this one was just to remind myself that, yeah, it's for me personally, but also for wayward children. And not even that, but for people who have wronged us. It's for each each individual person that is in our life, that if we can remember right. that this applies to us personally, then we, have to, we also have to allow it to apply for them. Yeah, oh. <laughs> that sometimes we are the enemies to somebody that's been brought back. Yes, that's a great point. In fact, that's a really good point. Do we ever become the enemies? We're not letting somebody repent. We're remembering what they did. We're going to not extend our love and caring to somebody who has tried to come back and is trying to change, but we've got long memories. Maybe they hurt us. Maybe they hurt somebody that we love. Maybe, maybe, maybe. And we're not, and, and uh, I will forgive, but I'm not going to forget. <laughs> too often it's the ones that we love the most. And at the moment they need to be loved the most. Well, no, too often the ones we don't forgive are the ones. We yes, yeah, because we leave them unforgiven. And then, yeah. So boy, I hadn't thought about that part of saying sometimes we constitute the enemies. And, and, the, and God is preparing a table for them in our presence. Ouch! <laughs> that, that ought to hurt. That's a little, little close to the vest. So there's the question we have to ask. Am I an enemy to somebody else? Is my narrow-mindedness or my judging being an enemy to somebody that God is preparing a table for them? Yeah. When he says, uh, my goodness and mercy shall follow me forever... Is that because we're becoming shepherds ourselves? Or is it because there's a couple of sheepdogs out there named goodness and we're... I'm wondering, as we partake of the, the, uh, the table, yeah. is this the body and blood of Christ and then do we become part of his body? He I don't know if you heard that. He figured there might be two sheepdogs by the name of goodness and mercy that are <laughs> following along behind him. I like that. Uh, no, the, the, the problem with the sheepdog is that they drive. They're driving from behind. And all of the image here has been about he leads from ahead and he doesn't and this isn't driving from behind because they're nipping at their heels and they're they're moving out of a sense of anxiety. Now it may be uh, we're gonna say goodness and mercy follow me because of guilt and fear nipping at my at my ankles and I and I move forward because I'm afraid and I and I operate out of guilt or fear that wouldn't work real well but but isn't it interesting that if we are that what might follow as we heal and as we change are we going to leave behind us in our wake goodness and mercy we become shepherds and that and that's ultimately the idea is that we will then become a shepherd like that yeah not to push the metaphor too far but his method sounds a little bit more like babe the sheep babe do you know how close i came to using some clips from babe <laughs> Because I, I loved that movie. Uh, it's a terrible day. Um, I thought it might ruin kind of the mood of where we were trying to go. But man, I came so close to using babe. 
especially when they're all lined up together right at the end and they're just <laughs> it would be ever so nice if you t if you got if you haven't seen babe you really should <laughs> be ever so nice if you could help me on this okay we will okay <laughs> baram you okay all right, so, so keep this in mind. Now, here, the beautiful thing now about the 23rd Psalm is that David is establishing that, and now as we begin to go forward in history, other prophets will begin to draw on this imagery. So powerful is it. In the midst of all these psalms, this one just rises to, to the top. Okay? And so let me give you, an, and so, and the Lord is going to use it as well. So let me, let me uh, step back. Here's, here's the next one where we're going to see it. And it's going to be in Ezekiel uh, chapter 33. So we, we just need to remind ourselves, I know we did the history thing, and you now know your Jewish history really well, but let me just remind you, in case you've slept since then, and I haven't got it, Okay. That Ezekiel was carried off to Babylon in the first wave of deportations in 598 B.C. Okay? By the way, who else is there in 598 B.C. watching all of this? Lehi. Lehi. Yeah. So this brings us right to the beginning of Book of Mormon times. There's two waves of deportations. The Babylon rolls in. They conquer it. They put Zedekiah on the throne. Zedekiah is a puppet, basically. Even though he's, he's part of the kingship line, they're going to kill the current king. They're going to put Zedekiah on the throne. And then they leave to go fight Egypt. Off they go. But in this first wave, they're going to take all of the royals and, and highbrow people. They're going to haul them off to Babylon. And they're going to live in refugee camps right at, at the front, at the, the, around, outside the walls of Babylon. Because they don't yet have a place to put them. But there's thousands and thousands of high-born Jews that are now in exile. Ezekiel is the one who stays, who's the, or the one that is hauled off, along with uh, David and, and Meshach and Mendigo and those guys. Okay. Who is left? Who's the prophet that's left in the city? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So Jeremiah gets to be the recorder of what's going on at home. Ezekiel's going to tell you what's happening with the exiles in Babylon. Okay. Then, in 586, uh, Jeremiah, in one of these camps, uh, says, says this. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, it's so important, he's to remember the exact day. Someone who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. Uh, the army of Nebuchadnezzar came back. Zedekiah had been found sucking up to the Egyptians. He discovered the betrayal. Uh, he's going to kill Zedekiah in front of his kids. Except we know that a couple of them get away, like Mulek. Okay, but he's going to Zedekiah will be killed, and the and the temple burned, and the city raised and just leveled. Okay. Yes, right. And then they put his eyes out. Thank, thank you. Yep. Okay. So he says, 
Uh, someone who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me said the city has fallen now listen to his response now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came but he had opened my mouth by the time the fugitive came to me in the morning so my mouth was opened and I was no longer uh, unable to speak in other words Jeremiah or, uh, Ezekiel knew the night before that Jerusalem had fallen, but he, he wasn't able to speak. Now when the fugitive comes, he's able to open up his mouth and begin to speak. The horribleness and what happened. Because imagine for all of those people in, in refugee camps outside Babylon, they're saying, well, maybe we can go home tomorrow or something. And then they find out, by the way, your city is now gone. And the magnificent temple of Solomon has been destroyed. Okay. So, in the aftermath, the Lord says, And as for you, son of man, Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls, outside in this refugee camp, and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his neighbor, Come, after now we've heard about the, the city falling, uh, hear what, what the, Lord, the word is that comes from the Lord. There's a prophet, we know it's Ezekiel, he was part of the prophet guild, so we know who he is. We're going to go and hear what he has to say. It's general conference, let's turn on the TV. They come to you as people come. They sit before you as my people. They hear your words, but they will not obey them, for flattery is on their lips, and their heart is set on their gain. We've taken them from Jerusalem, and we picked them up, and we moved them all to Las Vegas. <laughs> And this is kind of cool. <laughs> There's all kinds of stuff here that we didn't have in Jerusalem. That Wow, that we had no idea. That, that's why when the time comes, uh, when, Syria, when, when Cyrus uh, conquers Babylon, and Cyrus, being prompted by Isaiah, says, uh, you guys can go home if you want to. Most of them will go, no, nah, I think we'll stay. There's not much. There's much. Not much left in Israel and in Jerusalem. That's a mess. Ah, uh, we kind of like hanging out here by the the rivers here. Uh, this is a nicer place. And and Jerusalem, especially as you get towards the south, that's more desert. They're up by Babylon. That's the Fertile Crescent. This is a green, lush place. They're the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Where I think we'll stay. Well, and 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 there were. That's why at the time of Jesus, there were as many people in Bab many Jews in Babylon as there was in Israel. We're going to stick around. We like this. Okay. Uh, look how the Lord puts it. To them, you are like a singer of love songs, one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on the instrument. They hear what you say, but they will not do it. They're listening, but they're not doing anything. Okay. When this comes and they're doing this and they're sitting there and you find that they're not changing and it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. I, I really love that. Yeah. You do have ears let them hear. There's superficial level of... Mm -hmm. that's, that's nice. That's nice. 
we're here, we're showing up at the meetings, we really are, but we're not really making any changes, okay? I know we're supposed to be ministering, but I think I'd rather kind of do visiting teaching. <laughs> or I wasn't really doing my home teaching anyway, I'm not sure I'll be doing my ministering either. <laughs> you know, and I'm just not changing, okay? So, in the midst of all of this, guess what? Guess what language the Lord is going to then use to begin to instruct the people that are now scattered? There's the 23rd Psalm. Listen to the verbiage that he's going to begin to use and watch how he draws on the 23rd Psalm to begin to instruct the people. Thus saith Lord God unto who? Oh, the shepherds. By the way, who'd be the shepherds? Who's in Babylon? Who got? Who was the first wave that got taken to Babylon? The elite. Yeah, the, I guess the elite. Too. Right. So it'd be the people in the court. It would be the people of high-born kind of thing. Trained craftsmen. These are supposed to be the upper people. The, these are the people who he says, I'm going to talk to the shepherds. You were supposed to be shepherding. How did that go? <laughs> the disease have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that what was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought up again that was driven away. Oh. Note to self, how might a sheep get lost? It, it might be led away. Shepherd, yeah. There you go. Uh, and, and when we talk about the lost and the 99, we're going to try and figure out how did this sheep get lost? Because there's a couple of ways sheep can get lost. In this case, it says they were driven away. Oh. Wow. With force and cruelty have you ruled them? They might have left because they were tired of how they were being treated. It's kind of the cycle of divorce sometimes I see in my office. Sometimes, sometimes marriages end by neglect and sometimes they end because of cruelty. You're getting a divorce? Yeah, it was the, it was the only way that I could kind of save my sanity and I'm tired of hurting. Ah, good question. So these shepherds would have been the people that were around the king, the people that were responsible, like the scribes, like the people that were supposed to be teaching and loving and caring for. But hold on, because there's a little surprise in here. So hang on to that question. For thus saith Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. What's he saying? Because the shepherds messed up, what will happen? What's that? I will do that myself. There, and it's a foreshadowing. There will come a day because the shepherds of Israel are being cruel and driving them out, I will come and do it myself. It's a foreshadowing that the shepherd will come and do it. 
as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that is he among his sheep that are scattered so I so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in a cloudy and dark day by the way I put that phrase cloudy and dark day in there anybody else know where else that phrase is used if you do you're really really good because I remember hearing it and I had to search to remember where I'd heard it it's in the Nauvoo Temple dedicatory prayer Joseph and Sidney when they were putting that prayer together recognized that one of the responsibilities of the temple was to bring in the lost sheep the dysphoria where they, the Jews have been scattered all over the earth and we those in the temple have a responsibility because of their gathering to take care of them and he uses this phrase that he's saying to Joseph and the little people in, in Kirtland in this little group of, of saints you guys are responsible to gather in Judah where they have been scattered on that dark and cloudy day kind of a cool deal and they're drawing this from Ezekiel which would have been kind of a head scratcher those guys is like well, we don't have any money and we're just barely trying to hang on here and we got all kinds of problems in Missouri and we're responsible for Israel Wow why don't we send Orson Hyde maybe he'd go dedicate it and start this thing okay and I will bring them out from the people and gather them in from I will bring them back I will bring them home and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the habited places of the country I will go searching for them I will find them and I will put them on my shoulders and bring them home the, the, digging deep kind of in the images of the 23rd Psalm I will feed them in good pasture upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be there they shall lie in the good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel you see the imagery if you understand the 23rd Psalm this ought to just jump out at you because he's using the same thing in other words I talked about for King David that I will bring him back now who's he, who's he now talking about he's going to bring back who are the lost sheep all of Israel all of Israel I will bring them all back And, by the way, again, if, if, if the imagery is also being used in the Nauvoo Temple dedicatory prayer, uh, what are we responsible for? Those in the temples? Bringing scattered Israel home. We are to do the same thing. So we become these shepherds. Okay? Kind of fun, huh? Now, watch where Ezekiel goes here, though. Because there is a tendency sometimes among abused people to look at those who have hurt us and say, like for instance, when, when the saints are dragging themselves across the plains after being kicked out of Nauvoo, who are they angry at? 
Who said? Who, who put him in the wilderness? Boggs did. That got us out of Missouri. The mobs that killed Joseph in Carthage. Um, the the traitors among us. I mean, it's like here's we're going through horrible stuff, and here's who here's who we blame. Okay. The Jews were doing the same thing. How come we're stuck here in Babylon? Well, it was them. It was them bad shepherds. And we're angry at them. Now, but look at what Ezekiel does. After the Lord says, I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down. But Ezekiel adds one more piece to it that wasn't in the 23rd Psalm. And that is, he's going to point out bad sheep. <laughs> As for you, O oh my flock, <laughs> saith the Lord God, behold, I will judge between cattle and cattle. Yikes. Between rams and the he-goats. You are angry because you had bad shepherds. And you did. But where else must you look? At yourself. I will judge between cattle and cattle. Between sheep and sheep. Because not all sheep are the same. Seemeth it a small thing unto you that you have eaten up the good pasture, but she must tread with your feet the residue of the pastures and a drunk of the deep waters. You must now fell the residue with your feet. Okay. Stop for a second. Anybody who knows kind of the, uh, what, the Ruth and Boaz story and all those. What might we be talking about here? What was the tradition in the ancient kind of harvesting of um, crops in Israel? Yeah. To leave, to leave what? For the gleaners. For the gleaners. For the gleaners. There you go. Okay. In other words, we're supposed to go through and we will, we will harvest our crops, but we will leave behind a lot. Okay, so that the gleaners can come behind, the poor can actually go into the fields and draw out uh, that, and they can actually live off of that stuff. That's why I, uh, I was thought in the, uh, you know, if we go back about 50 years, we didn't have young men's, young women's, we had the M men, the Melchizedek men, I guess, M men, and the gleaners yes yes we're supposed to be going out I guess I'm not sure if that was glean and find the, the, the people or you're supposed to be really thrifty and just glean what you can get I, I'm never quite sure anybody know where that term gleaners came from but this for the longest time Matt. yeah I know there's a group that's outside the church called the senior gleaners their whole purpose is to go around to like Grocery stores and things, and their day-old bread and stuff, they would gather it and then give it to the poor. So that ah, okay. 
And it would be better if we could glean a little bit more often. I, I remember when I was when I when I got back from my mission and I was working it all night at 7-Eleven, and I would have the sandwiches in there, and they would get to their expiration date, but they were still good. So I had to throw them away. But I was also working the all-night shift in Ogden, Utah, and it was not a real great part of the city. And I would take the, those sandwiches, and when when police officers might come in in the middle of the night, I'd say, here, want a sandwich? <laughs> Great! And I started feeding all of the police in that area of what I was gleaning off of my shelves. And so I remember one night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I had like five police cars parked in front of my 7-Eleven. And I'm feeding them sandwiches and I'm pouring them drinks and everything. You guys hang around, have a party. And then uh, the alarm would go off on one of their cars and go, ah, gotta go. All right, see ya. Want a sandwich to go? Okay. See you later. Yeah. I just looked up Glean. Yeah. And so one of the definitions, obviously one of them is gather. Right. Reapers, but one is to learn, discover, or find out, usually little by little or slowly. Ah, go back in and dig at the bottom of all of that. Ah, we're a digger. In the old M and Gleaner program, my mother participated in this and got the little pin. She got a Gleaner pin. Yeah, that's like a couple of stalks of wheat or something. Certain goals to set and certain things to participate in. That's awesome. Because they were all new members of the church. Oh. The Houston State was made up of people. That we're gleaning the knowledge from everybody else. Yes. How the church operates. That's, that's awesome, yeah. In the, in the days of the gleaners, where the tradition, uh, there was two parts to that. I think it's really interesting. The first one is when they harvested, they didn't pick everything. Right. They left maybe 10%, which I think is significant. But they also did not do the corners at all in the fields. You know, and so... I think that that's a way of life entirely, not for us to be grasping everything for ourselves and, uh, you know, and, and, and to leave some stuff for those people who are really looking, but also for some people, uh, you know, that can't go searching, so they go to the corners. Okay. All right. So... Take all of this now, and the Lord says, You have eaten up the good pasture, you tread down with your feet the residue. And you've drunk in the deep waters, but you've fouled the rest of the water with your feet. What is he accusing the sheep of doing? What have they been doing? They haven't been what? They have not been taking care of the poor. Absolutely. And in fact, when you start reading Jeremiah and, and all that, that was exactly what they were going after. The problem with the poor, the, the, the people, especially this first wave coming out here, is that you were starving the poor. We talked about before, all through the Book of Mormon, for instance, if you want a city to go away, you want to destroy a city, what do you do? Kill the prophets and starve the poor. That'll get you Sodom and Gomorrah. Throw out the prophets, starve the poor. Yep. Yeah, he's pretty consistent. So, they haven't been um, feeding her gospel to the poor either. Because they've muddied the waters of oh. the living waters of the Savior. Yeah. 
right? So they don't have still waters to drink and they just have foul waters to try and drink out of. Absolutely. Oh, they've confused many people. Yeah, and they took away the good stuff. So what's left, the gospel that's left for them has been trampled and changed and dirtied and sullied. Uh, this would be the Deuteronomist that had changed <coughs> the pure doctrines of the past when they under Josiah and they changed it and made it all about Torah and not about prophets. Great point. Okay, so he's going to actually drive this home. And as for my flock, they eat which they have trodden down with your feet. They drink which you have fouled with your feet. You guys have messed with my pure doctrine. And they can't be healed. They can't, they can't get the rest that they deserve. They're not being able to lie down in green pastures. They're lying down in drought, muck. Okay? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and the lean cattle. Now, I love this imagery. Because ye have thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. Wow! Why are some of the sheep lost? They got pushed out. That's really clear. Who says there's nothing in the Old Testament for us? <laughs> Man. That's like, some of the sheep were lost because you shoved them out of the herd. You trampled their food, you soiled their water, and then you pushed them out where they felt no longer welcome. Okay? Ouch. Yeah. I, I catch the word here too, disease. So in other words, they were vulnerable. So maybe they were, the, they were the young man who had the purple hair at church. Yes, yes. They were yes. The young woman that wore her skirt too short. They were vulnerable. Yep. And they were struggling a little bit, and you shoved them out. You got rid of them. So sometimes they're lost because of bad shepherds, and sometimes they're lost because the sheep themselves are driving them out. And it wasn't about the shepherds at all. Whew. There's a little condemnation. And that's why you are in Babylon, and your city has been destroyed. You think that's why it is they didn't necessarily want to listen to Ezekiel? Oh, these are hard sayings. Who can hear this? I think we're going away. I don't think we like to hear that. I think our bishop's being just a little bit mean on that stuff. <laughs> a little bit pushy. He doesn't understand where we are. Okay? And what right does President Oaks have to talk about this and that? Okay. Alright, where are we? All right. Yeah, let's keep let's keep going. Okay. So, there are several other places in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is one, Jeremiah has one, Zedekiah has one that all tie back to the 23rd Psalm. But I want to kind of pick it up and move it move the the story forward a little bit. We'll hop into the you're welcome to go find all of the 23rd Psalm references in the Old Testament in your spare time. Uh, but I want to I want to hop over um, into the New Testament. And I want to remind you a little bit about, uh, we, we talked about this uh, a month or so ago and we started kind of saying, who are the Jews? 
and, and what do Jews believe about these things and we can't use a monolithic idea of who are the Jews because that would be a little bit like we said it'd be a little bit like saying what do Americans think of Trump depend on who you talk to right well what do the Jews think of Jesus depend on what do the Jews think of, of uh, Rome well depends on who you talk to so just a reminder uh, part of how we look at, at the Jews was how, how much distance they were kind of ideologically from Rome. And so what we've got is the ones closest to, to uh, Rome are the Herodians. Those are the royal family that are coming under, under Herod. Uh, remember Herod, Herod the Great, you know, he's doing fine. Then he's going to suck up to Mark Antony and Mark Antony loses. And now he's got to suck up to Octavius. And Octavius is going to let him be king sort of but he's going to break up his kingdom he's not going to let him be king so his one son Herod Antipas is going to be here and and you're going to get his other brother Philip is going to be up near the north and I mean just so they break up the kingdom okay um, but the Herodians are kind of in the middle of all of this and they're the ones that think they're kind of royal and they're, they're really close to Rome right next to them is the Sadducees uh, who had the really nice palatial houses in the old city of David and they're the ones collecting the temple taxes uh, and they're doing quite nicely and their homes in the old city would have looked pretty close to what Pompeii looked like uh, or Rome because they're trying, it's all about marble and frescoes and stuff like that and uh, you go to Masada you're going to see the same kind of thing okay Sadducees now at the other end of the spectrum we have the Pharisees the Pharisees don't like anything that's going on over here with Rome. We're going to keep ourselves uh, separate. We're going to create extra rules to make sure that we're not Sadducees. We're very proud that we're not Sadducees. We're more in the country. We don't have an organized group where each rabbi is kind of their own and they're making some of their own rules. Uh, and the Pharisees are kind of uh, doing their thing, but they have kind of a basic philosophy. We ain't Rome. <laughs> We don't like Romans. We want the Romans to go away. They are pagans in our midst. Okay? They have rib dinners, and we don't like that very much. Okay? Now, on the other end of Pharisees is the group that thought the Pharisees were far too liberal, uh, and that would be the Essenes and the Zealots. We're not, the, the Pharisees at least lives in towns. But the Essenes go, no, we're not even leaving in town. We're going outside of town. We're create, we think you already corrupted the temple. We don't use the temple. We're going to create our own uh, uh, mitzvahs, our own cleansing baths out there in, in uh, Qumran and out there because those Pharisees have gone way over the edge. They're way too liberal for us. Okay. Now, there is a group that spans that sits right in between the Essenes and the Pharisees. Interesting little group uh, known as the Habarim. Uh, the Habarim, uh, Habar, or Havar, it means friends, it means associates. The Habarim was a guild of um, super strict Pharisees. 
and, and they were going to make sure that they were better than most Pharisees, but not quite the Essenes because we really don't like the landscape down near the Dead Sea. <laughs> you know, So we can live in the city, sort of, but we're going to be really strict. Pharisees wouldn't associate with Gentiles. The Habarim wouldn't associate with other Jews. <laughs> we're going to take it much more much more farther. Uh, the guild of the Habarim, the friends, were elite Pharisees that were not allowed to eat or have dealings with the people of the land. And the people of the land are called the Amharats. And that might, the Amharats were those, and they might be, they might be the uh, sandal maker in town. They might be, and a lot of times they were shepherds. They had a disdain for people that did not spend all their time studying the scriptures. And one of the ways that you can tell who the Habarim are is that they would not eat with the people of the land. So there was a natural tendency between the Habarim and the Amharats, the common people of the town. Okay, does that make sense? So just keep in mind, the, the Pharisees won't eat with Gentiles, the Habarim won't even eat with other Jews. It's going to have to just be us, us. Okay? Now, but, but colloquially they are known, if, if you're going to run into a, a member of the, the guild of the Habarim, they're going to be known as friends. They are the friends. Anytime that the Savior is using the term friends in referring to people out there, he's going to be talking about the Habarim, these really strict Pharisees. That's why it's going to be really interesting when he's going to turn to his apostles and he's going to say, as he did to Joseph Smith, and he, and he said, Henceforth I'll no longer call you servants, I shall call you Friends, I'm going to reframe the term friends. And he's reframing it. But initially, when he uses the word friends, he's talking about the Habarim. Okay? Got it? Okay. By the way, we know about this. How do we know about this? It's all, it's all uh, written in the uh, Babylonian Torah that gives all the rules for the Habarim about who they can associate. Because they were doing the same thing in Babylon. Yeah? Uh, how each different group people identify themselves is it because I'm thinking about what's the difference between them and the secret combination and also do they identify each other by the look, the dress or just by some uh, <laughs> really really good question club. like a, you, you join a club but everybody looks different yeah if you're gonna join a gang what kind of, you got some signs going you got some tattoos yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, the 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 Pharisees and uh, are gonna be separate the the uh, if you go over to the Sadducees the Sadducees were going to be distinguished by their fine twined linen think about Lehi Okay, where in and the the uh, 
in 1 Nephi 8 when they talk about the people in the great and spacious building and they have their clothes and a lot of it's going to be distinguished by clothes because it isn't like they've got Lexuses and Jaguars that they're driving around in so it's going to be a lot about their clothes uh, and and for the for the Pharisees, they're going to leave a, a, a lot more simply. It's going to be more rough-hewn stuff. Uh, for the Habarim, and that, that brings us to a really good question. How are you going to be able to tell the difference between the Pharisees and the Habarim and the Amharats? The biggest, most telling thing is going to be who you eat with and how you prepare to eat. So how is Jesus, John, Elizabeth, Mary, how were, where do they fit? Ah, now you're going right direction. There is a belief among a, a number of scholars that I read, believe that in his early days that Jesus very easily might have been a Habarim. In the early days in Nazareth, that he might have been involved in all of this because of a uh, his extensive knowledge by twelve that he can go into the temple and converse with the other priests, and also in the way that he speaks, he uses a poetic form that is a high level. Even though he spoke to the common people in common Greek, his ability to do the Psalms, for instance, are very highbrow. It's something the Habarim would have really appreciated. So there's a, there's a belief maybe he was that. But certainly uh, Peter and Andrew and John and all those, they were going to be Amharats. They, they, more than likely, these are people of the land. They're too, they're too busy fishing to be spending all day studying like the Habarim were. But he told them that he will be friends. Yes, friends my way, not friends their way. Does that make sense? See, in, in Jerusalem today, we have the equivalent of, of the uh, Havarim. Um, and it's like when uh, I mentioned before, when Cindy and I walked into an old neighborhood just away, just two blocks away from the Jerusalem Hotel, and you walk in, and it was like walking back 50 years in time to the uh, Orthodox Jewish neighborhood uh, that is very much. Uh, not very many cars. Everybody's wearing black and white, and all black hats and curly hair, and 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 they're not going to really associate much with anybody else. In fact, if we had tried to take pictures of them, and I knew this, that they might get mad. They might stone us. They might throw rocks. The tourists will talk about having bad experiences in Orthodox neighborhoods because they have separated themselves out away. We're going to prove we're more Jewish than they are. We're, we are the most Jewish of the Jewish. And, but how are we going to know? It's going to be why they, how they dress, how they eat, and they spend all day studying the scriptures. Right now, if you are a member of, of an Orthodox Jew, you don't have to serve in the military, and you don't have to uh, work. You get, you're on welfare. You get paid mm. to study to study all, all day long. So if you go along the Wailing Wall and down inside the studying area on the left, down inside there, you run into these Orthodox Jews and they spend all day studying. That's the Habarim. Okay, that is the latest version of that. Hasidic Jews. Hasidics. Yeah. Yep. And they won't fight and, and, and all, they don't want to sit on uh, the same bus with women. I mean, they're very strict rules. Okay. That's what that is. Okay, good. ten minutes. We, we learned that their wives are very educated and they work. And the wives can work because it's not their job to spend all day studying Torah. Right. Uh -huh. right. 
That's exactly right. Okay, so we so we have that you have that sense? Okay, now, why does this become important? Okay, so let's hop over to Luke 15. Luke 15 is one of the most beautiful chapters, I think, in all the New Testament. And, and its lessons are powerful, and it has deep connections to the 23rd Psalm. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to listen. And both the scribes and Pharisees, whoa, the scribes and Pharisees complained, saying, This accepts sinners and eats with them. Now, I've left that in ellipses for a reason. And that is, most of the, the, most of the versions, including the King James Version, and including Tom Wayman's version, says, This man eats with sinners. Okay? The very earliest Greek text, leave it, don't, Man, man has been an, has been added by later editions. The original verbiage from these guys was this eats with sinners. Can you imagine what they were filling in this? Okay, in a very sarcastic way, the, what they're really saying is this, this eats with sinners. This nobody might be. This fool. This pretender. This, this insult to Judaism. This. It's a, very, it's a very sarcastic, dismissive term. This. This eats with sinners. That's why they were so bad with Jesus. Yeah, and, and that gives you some sense about what they're thinking. Now, this eats with sinners. What's the problem here? He's eating with sinners. Yes. Give you, you start to get a sense. Who's he talking about? Probably the Habarim. Okay, but there is one other little clue here, and I had to do a little tracking down on this that makes this even more interesting. This accepts. What does it mean to accept? In a dinner sense. Recognize. Welcome. Welcome. Approve of. He prepares a table for me. Who is hosting the dinner? This accepts sinners. Actually celebrates. Yes. But who's the host? A little more in Mark, we have this little bit of a verse that sometimes gets passed over. And he returned to Capernaum after some days, and it was reported that he was where? At home. Who's hosting the meal? Jesus is hosting the meal. Where is he hosting the meal? At his house. 
We have had a tradition sometimes to try and say Jesus never had a home. He did. It was in Capernaum. Jesus had a home in Capernaum. It's one thing if he's going to go to Simon the leper or, or uh, to, to feed in, in the... He's going to eat at the house of Zacchaeus, for instance, in Jericho. But in this case, he's saying this man accepts sinners at his house. Meaning this man is hosting a meal in his house for sinners. That changes it quite a bit. It isn't like he just happened to go to a sinner's house like he does and has. But in this case, he's hosting a dinner party at his house. And who got invited? The sinners did and the tax collectors. This is inviting these people to his house. And that breaks all the Habarim rules. But it also means, look who he's associating with. Now, this, this is one of those moments, I believe, because they're watching this whole process. This is one of the times of the most literal, transla- the most literal um, uh, iteration of the 23rd Psalm. Because he is literally doing what? I'm preparing a table where? In the presence of, I'm preparing a table for sinners in the presence of mine enemies. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Potentially even people that were his friends that may have known him if he really did do some strict teaching stuff like that. uh, Learning of the Habarim. Wow. Now he's hosting them and he's breaking all the rules. So, this is breaking the rules, and he spoke unto them this parable. And we got five minutes. Um, We'll start and we'll just continue next week. He spoke unto them this parable. Now, if you look in, if you're looking ahead in Luke 15. How many parables are there in Luke 15? Count them. How many are there? Three. There's the parable of the lost sheep. Right behind that comes the parable of the woman with the lost coin. And right behind that comes the one that we're going to do at a later time because it's too big and too expansive for what we're doing at the moment. Lost sheep, lost coin, and lost boys. We're going to talk about the good shepherd, the good woman, and the good father. Who lost sheep, coins, and boys. And he's going to tell you this is one parable. It's going to be important you weld these together to see the entire picture. These are, these, this is a three-in-one combination. Okay? Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. 
And uh, I understand tax collectors and the sinners. Was that everybody besides them? I think it would have. I think it would have been. I mean, for instance, sinners could have been some of the women that he was healing and stuff like that who were showing up. I mean, specifically, uh, the, the, the woman that's going to uh, bathe his feet in her tears and all that, they talk about, it's right after, they really kind of start talking about he, he eats with sinners. She could have been there. I think she's now traveling with him, by the way, is my own opinion. But, okay? All right. And you know what? This is going to be a really good place to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Because, because what it gives you a chance to do now is to be able to go look and read in depth Luke 15. Because um, we're going to start with the parable of the lost sheep and we'll pick that up next week. Okay? Alright. Questions on any of this? Because we are going to go from, if you're wanting to read ahead, probably take uh, Luke 15, and then we're going to go from Luke 15, uh, and we're going to do, we're going to then go to Mark 6. So it'll be Luke 15 and Mark 6 uh, for next week. I think we'll easily be able to do that. So. Isn't this fun? Yes. yes. Okay. Um, Again, I, I have I have such a, a tenderness for this because I think I think it's just the imagery that's being used that was that was understood by the people of the Near East back then uh, is powerful. But I think the idea of sheep resonates from us, with us. I, I was looking through the Book of Mormon yesterday um, and and the references for sheep in the Book of Mormon and they're there and they're talking about sheep and wolves driving them out. Well. There weren't there there weren't any sheep among the Nephites that we know of, and there weren't. That's messages for us, and so the Book of Mormon is talking about sheep, but it's really it's our own experience when we look at this because the principles still apply, and I think they're all growing out of the twenty third Psalm. So yeah. Yeah. Right. So they came down and they saw our presentation of women in the Gale State. And uh, they put on a fireside for those of us that are in the cast. And one of the things that they said is they said whenever they wrote the original script, they and which the first the whole first part is about the birth of the Savior and the second half is about the resurrection. And they said we wanted to interject a little bit of humor and so they asked the general parties if it would be okay for them to maybe just maybe do a little bit of humor regarding the shepherds. And uh, the leaders came back and said, absolutely not. They said that the shepherds were the Melchizedek priesthood holders that were guarding the sheep that were going to be dedicated or going to be sacrificed in the temple. They were righteous enough to have visited the visitation of the temple. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think this is broader than that. This is so much deeper and so much broader than, than that And because the, the principles are so powerful. By the way, you know what? Cindy, can I get away showing a, a clip from Babe next week? 
<laughs> okay, I got it. I may have to do that because it's just too good. It's, it's too close to what we're doing here. So, okay. Uh, bearing my testimony, this is, this is great stuff. Thanks for coming. Have a good week. And I leave this with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.